Thank you, Roseanne, and thank you for coming back tonight, especially on this holiday weekend. So good to see so many of you here this evening. Tonight we're looking at Psalm 73. I've entitled this a psalm in the time of disappointment and discouragement. Uh, Begin with what is the point, what is the use, why bother? It's talking about times of frustration, times in which we are discouraged and perhaps even discouraged with our Christian faith and the commitments that are expected of us, the conduct that is expected, uh, the commitment that is expected. And as we begin thinking about expectation after expectation, uh, we might get discouraged, especially as we look at non-believers and actually may begin to envy their lack of commitment and uh, the freedoms that they may enjoy. The proposition is God truly is good to his people, though it may not always feel that way. Uh, There are things that we know to be true, and there are theological beliefs that we hold, and we hold them dearly, but yet somehow, from time to time, they don't seem to square with our experience. And so there's an inward struggle that goes on between what we know to be true and how I feel about the things that I know to be true. So the key verses are verses 1 and 2 of Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Now, there are a number of ways in which one could approach this psalm. And one approach would be to consider the benefits of public worship. It's not how I'm going to treat this psalm, but you could treat it that way. The psalmist, when left alone to his own thoughts and reflections upon life and scripture, he seemed to be getting nowhere, verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task. He wasn't getting the answers that that he was looking for. He was trying to square his experience with what the scriptures taught. He's trying to square the experience of the non-believers that looked in some ways better than his own experience. And he said the more that he thought, the more that he uh, reflected, the more that he studied, it just became wearisome. Rather than being a relief and rather than being an encouragement, it just became more of a difficulty. However, things changed when he came to public worship. Verse 17 is the place of transition in the psalm. It says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And from Psalm 17, uh, excuse me, from Psalm 73, verse 17 on, there's a whole different mindset. And it comes about as a result of being involved in public worship until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then he gained a new perspective. End of verse 17. Then I discerned their end. Now, after all, I have Asaph was a leader of public worship. So that's what makes this uh, psalm so intriguing. We have the leader of public worship being ministered to by public worship. Perhaps his wearisomeness had to do 
with public worship. Uh, maybe it wasn't what he was enjoying. Perhaps there were issues that were present, whatever the case may be. But here is the leader of public worship, but is going to be ministered to through that public worship. Uh, that shouldn't surprise us. That shouldn't surprise us. I know that uh, many times, uh, you know, the Lord refreshes me through the own, my own uh, teaching and, and preaching of the Word of God. God speaks to me. And I'm sure you've had that experience if you taught Sunday school or been involved with the Word of God, that uh, as you give yourself to it, the Lord speaks to you, the Lord refreshes you, the Lord encourages you from the Word. Well, here is the, the uh, psalmist uh, being ministered to by public worship. To uh, demonstrate that he was responsible for public worship, First Chronicles 16, 4 and 5. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief. And second to him were Zechariah, Jael, uh, and then all these others. Uh, Asaph was to sound the symbol. So he was the leader. He was the chief of public worship. Asaph was noted as the author of a variety of psalms in addition to this one, 2 Chronicles 29.30. And Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. Now Asaph has another title behind his name, and that is a seer. A seer is another word for a prophet. So he was uh, not only the leader of public worship and uh, leading the, the singing and leading the instruments and playing the cymbals, etc., but uh, he also was the author uh, of uh, a number of the Psalms. He authored Psalm 50 and 73 to 83. So the theme tonight is Asaph moves from disappointment to praise in his relationship to the Lord. First, the proposition that God is indeed good to Israel. The psalmist expresses the truth that God is in fact good to Israel. Truly, God is good to Israel. That wasn't up for debate. That wasn't a matter of question. That's a statement of fact. It's a statement of truth. All right. As a believer in God, as one who was faithful to the Lord, he knew that to be a truth. He knew that to be a truth. Truly, God is good to Israel. God is good to his people. And as Christians, I think we would say that with one voice. If we were asked the question, is God good? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. But B, uh, the pure in heart are indeed blessed. Verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. And to be pure in heart doesn't mean to be sinless, but as the word is used here, it means to be unmixed. It's talking about to have complete devotion. One that has sold out in their relationship to God. So here is a, a person who is truly committed uh, to the Lord. And see, the pure in heart are mentioned because the psalmist feels as though there is no benefit in his having dedicated himself to the Lord. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So he's sold out in serving the Lord, but then he steps back and says, but what's the use? What's the point? Uh, he is discouraged in this, this service as we all can become discouraged in our service for the Lord. 
And we have the admonition in the New Testament, be not weary in well-doing. Because sometimes we do. We just get tired of doing the right thing, of making the commitment, of the sacrifice that's required, the time that's necessary to put in. And we ask, you know, what's the point? What's, what's the benefit? So B, the reality of the psalmist's personal condition. He was declining spiritually. Though God is good to Israel, <clears throat> I do not always feel that way, verse 2, but as for me, but as for me. Now we have this, this personal example. The psalmist had come to faltering in his walk with God, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He was moving away from God. He was walking away from God, if you will. And in following the Lord, he almost tripped up. He, he was almost departing. I don't think he's departing in the ultimate final sense, but he's wandering. He's wandering, and he's losing his commitment. All right? He's struggling spiritually. Three, the reason for the psalmist's spiritual malaise is that he was jealous of the non-believer. And uh, we'll see that this jealousy manifests itself in a number of ways. First, the psalmist was jealous due to their confidence. For I was envious of the arrogant. I was envious of the arrogant. And here, this word for arrogant means to be self-sufficient. Uh, people that don't seem to need anybody else, including God. And we know people like that. We know people that are full of self-confidence, that uh, think that they can do anything, they can conquer the world. They don't seem to have any twinge of conscience. Nothing seems to bother them. Uh, they're able to just assert themselves and not worry about what other people think. Not in the terms of judgmental, but meaning that they don't care if they offend somebody. Uh, they're not upset if they hurt somebody's feelings. They can care less, all right? They're just looking out for themselves. They're self-sufficient. They don't need anybody. And at times, that looks pretty good. People that just don't need other people, and don't have to worry about other people. The reasons for the psalmist's jealousy, and note the repeated use of the word for. He was jealous of their wealth, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They were getting ahead. Uh, they were prosperous. They owned lands and fields, and they seemed to be doing quite well. He was jealous of the lack of conscience, for there are no pangs until death. No pangs until death. And that could be understood in a physical sense, meaning that they don't have any physical problems, but it appears more because that's going to be mentioned later. This is probably talking about uh, twinges of conscience. Uh, doesn't bother them. Doesn't bother them. Their sin doesn't bother them. Their wrongdoing doesn't bother them. They are just living a merry old life, it seems. Thirdly, he was jealous of their lifestyle. Their bodies are fat and sleek. <laughs> Boy, that, that, that's an oxymoron, fat and sleek, uh, meaning that they uh, can gorge themselves, but it doesn't seem like they gain weight. <laughs> uh, isn't that kind of nice? Uh, to be able to eat whatever you want, but never have to worry about getting, getting heavy, getting fat. Uh, he's saying that 
They're able to eat their cake and have it too, as it were. That they give themselves over to their, their lusts and their desires, and it doesn't seem like there's any consequence to it. It seems like they're getting away with murder, he's saying. No comes up, as it were. Four, he was jealous of their carefree life. As a result, they're not in trouble as others are. They don't seem to have the, the same difficulties that we have. Now, a lot of this is just a bad perspective. <coughs> um, we can get so introspective that we think that, that we have it worse than everybody else in the world, when in actuality, there could be a lot of people that are worse off than we are. But, but we can lose perspective. Uh, we, can, we can get to the point where we think that the, the sky is falling. You know, uh, I had a person say to me once, uh, doesn't go to church, so I don't have to worry about that, but they said to me, I know how Job feels. And, and I thought, no, you don't. No, you don't. I didn't say that, but that's what I thought. I thought, man, <laughs> have you read the book of Job? Do you, do you realize what Job went through? Do you, do you realize he lost his family, lost, he lost friends? You know, just, he lost everything. And this person is saying, well, I can relate to Job. I know what Job's going through. It's easy, it's easy to lose perspective and think that we are in a category all by ourselves in which nobody else is experiencing and going through the kinds of things that I'm going through. And Elijah experienced that in the Old Testament. Five, he was jealous of their freedom to act without restraint, the freedom they had in their relationships. Violence covers them as a garment. And, and you, uh, you look at that and you say, why would that be envious? Violence covers them as a garment. Um, did you ever wish that you could tell somebody off, but you know you can't? Because as a Christian, you don't do those kind of things. But inwardly, you'd love to give somebody a piece of your mind. There are, are times in which, you know, you might actually want to hit somebody. I, I remember, and I've used this illustration before, but it, it's an old one, so many of you have not heard it. But uh, many, many years ago, many, many years ago, before this building was built and so on, uh, our brother Ray Dowtrick was over here, and he was uh, practicing the organ. And I came over, and I said hello. And uh, he had just bought a brand-new car. And he knows I like cars. And he, he said, uh, here are the keys. Take it for a drive. And I thought, okay, sounds nice. And I'll take it for a drive. And I went out, and I went on Route 72. And I was going down the road, and the high beams were on. And I didn't know how to lower the high beams. So I was blinding this guy that was flashing his lights. Well, road rage uh, ensued. He turned around and came right 
behind me right up until the bumper, blowing the horn and carrying on. And so I speeded up, and so he, he sped up. And I'm in his brand new car. Last thing I want to do is have an accident or this guy rear end me, okay? So this is old enough that I was still living in the parsonage, so it goes way, way back. And anyway, I was able to turn around, and I pulled in to the uh, church driveway, I pulled up into the parsonage, and he's still right behind me. I get out of the car, and he gets out of the car. And he walks up to me. And he was quite a bit shorter than I, and he was in my face. And I could smell the alcohol on him, all right? He was, he was drunk. And he was just yelling at me. And I thought to myself, I could deck this guy. I, much, much younger. I could walk in those days and do all kinds of things that I can't do now. And I, and I just thought to myself, you know, I could just, I could just deck this guy. Because I didn't know what he was going to do. And then I thought, well, that's the worst thing in the world you do. All right. And so I just stood there and said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You don't understand. I didn't know where the lights were. And he's yelling. And I'm saying, I'm sorry. Uh, I understand. I blinded you, et cetera, et cetera. So finally got done yelling at me. He got tired. Of, and he got back in his car and he left. So fortunately, our brother's car was in one piece. There was no problem. But I tell you, I came this close. <laughs> I came this close to really nailing that guy. So we can struggle. And we could wish that we could do some things that we can't do because we're Christians. Violence covers their garment. B, freedom they had in their excesses. Their eyes swell out through fatness. All right, so here is this, this aspect of, of, of just excesses, giving themselves uh, to do whatever they, they want to do. And, you know, for, for some that might be uh, sexual freedom and actually wish that we could have more sexual experiences than what we have. I would hope not, but, but people wrestle with such things. See, the freedom that they had in their lack of inhibitions. Their hearts overflow with follies. They just give themselves to, to foolishness, all right? Drunkenness, all kinds of behaviors that are inappropriate. They just do whatever they want to do without any restraint. And the psalmist is saying, that's, that's pretty inviting. That, that looks pretty good. And that's a struggle sometimes with teenagers as they look around and they see what other people are doing and their parents don't have curfews for them or they allow them to do this and that and your parents don't. And it's easy to say, boy, I wish I had a different set of parents. I, I wish I didn't have to go to church every Sunday. I wish I didn't have to do certain things. Uh, it can happen. It can happen. Six. He was jealous of their self-confidence. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. They don't think anything is going to happen to them. They think they are in control. Verse 9. Their mouths are set against the heavens. Uh, the thought just came to mind. I'm, I'm, uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare, a name from the past. Uh, you might remember some of you, if you remember, she was the one that was most responsible for uh, prayers being removed from the public schools. 
Madeline Murray O'Hare. And uh, she is now dead, but was a, a well-known atheist. And her son, who was a believer, by the way, which is ironical, and is the grace of God, but her son, who's a believer, tells of an incident where she walked outside in the middle of a thunderstorm. It was just pouring, and lightning is flashing, and the thunder is just deafening, and it was just a horrific storm. And she raised her fist to heaven, and she shouted, if there is a God, strike me dead. And she has her son, who's a little boy, in tow. She's holding her hand, his hand as she's raising her fist toward heaven and saying, if there is a God, strike me dead. She wasn't struck dead. And she laughed. And she went back into the house. There's no fear. There's no fear. They don't worry about consequences. They don't worry about any kind of judgment. So number four, the response of the psalmist in his condition, he began to question his faith. The psalmist questions the wisdom of God. Verses 10 and 11, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Isn't God paying attention? If God is good, why is all this evil happening? Why does God allow what he allows? Why does God allow the things that come into my life, your life? And why doesn't God do something about all the evil around us? Why isn't there judgment and so on? And we can begin to ask all these questions. Doesn't God know? Doesn't God see? Can't God act? Why didn't he just strike down Madeline Murray O'Hare? The psalmist questions the value of serving God. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. See, the psalmist feels oppressed and burdened in living for God. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He's conscious is bothering him for the way in which he feels. The psalmist knows that he should not feel this way. Hey, he knows that his thoughts are not a good example for others. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He says, if, if I would have really let my, my thoughts know, if, if I really would have disclosed the struggles that I am having, it says that, that I would have stricken, excuse me, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I, I, I would have been a stumbling block to them. Here's the leader of public worship and saying, if, if I would have just blurbed and blotted out and, and just, just exploded with, with all these thoughts, he said, I would have betrayed the next generation. The psalmist feels guilty for his thoughts, which only make him more miserable and, and discontented. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me 
a wearisome task. All right, so it's an ongoing, never-ending circle, this downward spiral. Then we have the remedy to the psalmist's condition. He found help in going to God's house. The psalmist went into God's house until I went into the sanctuary of God. The psalmist came to a realization of the ultimate consequence for the ungodly. So I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. <laughs> then, then, I, then I realized what happens at the end of life. Then I realized how transitory things really are. And he gained a new perspective. Number one, the psalmist came to realization of the true condition of the wicked. A, though all seems well, they are teetering on the brink of disaster. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You set them in slippery places. So, so they are bragging. They feel like nothing could ever happen to them. They are self-confident. They say, I've got it all under control. And just like that, they fall. Just like that, life turns on its head. For it says, they, their end will be terrible. Verse 18, you make them fail to ruin, fall to ruin. And that ruin is, is ultimate destruction. The calamity will come upon them without, without warning, verse 19. How they are destroyed in a moment, in a moment. Everything looks fine. And then in just a heartbeat, things turn on a dime that were never anticipated, never thought never realized. A sickness, and certainly ultimately it's going to be talking about eternity, standing in front of a God that they gave no thought or concern about. D, it will be like God arising out of sleep and fulfilling their greatest nightmare. Verse 20, like, like a dream. When one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms, as phantoms, as ghosts, as these powerless individuals. When God wakes up, when, when God says, it's enough, when God says, I'm not going to tolerate this any longer, then things change. Number two, the psalmist came to realization of his own true condition. Hey, the psalmist recognized the destructive feelings that he possessed. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, when he was brought under conviction, B, the psalmist recognized his own stupidity. I was brutish and ignorant. The psalmist recognized his own stubbornness. I was like a beast before you. The psalmist said, all of this thinking was wrong. In fact, he says, I wasn't really thinking. I was acting like a beast towards you. And one of the major differences between us and the animal kingdom is our morality. It's, it's our ability to understand right and wrong. It's our awareness 
to act not by impulse, not to act by feeling, but by what we know to be right, what we know to be true. A beast just does whatever it feels like doing, has no conscience, has no ability to make judgments about about what they're doing. If they're hungry, they eat. If they want to mate, they mate. Whatever they, they feel like doing, they feel like doing. The psalmist said, I was acting like that. I was letting my impulses, I was letting my feelings rule me rather than your word and its truth, which I was finding to be weary. Now he finds it to be refreshing. Three, the psalmist came to a fresh realization of God's goodness. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. A God will continue to direct the psalmist. He says, you hold my right hand. God will never let go of me. Right? The, the great chorus we sing. Through the storm. Pastor Dave, what, what are the words? Yes, thank you. Oh no, you never let go through the storm and through the through the calm and through the storm. Oh no, you never let go. That's the song for this verse. Your hand holds me. You don't let me go. The psalmist says, "My feet had almost slipped. I'd almost stumbled. Why didn't he stumble?" Answer. God was holding on to him. God was holding on to him. I can remember when the, the kids were little. And uh, I remember walking with Sarah and Suki, Ruth, all when they were little. You know, you know when they're learning to walk? You know, and they're, they're stumbling and they easily fall, et cetera. And, and I remember just, just walking... And I would hold on to their hand because they couldn't really hold on to my hand. They, if they held on, they held on to my little finger. Because we're talking like when they're two, when they're three years old, and be walking along. So I'd hold on to their hand. And we'd be walking along, and they'd trip. And as I'd hold them on their hand, I would just pick them up and set them back down on their feet before they ever hit the ground. Put them back down. And I was holding on to them so that they would not stumble, so they would not trip. God is holding on to us, even when we feel that way. It's his invisible hand of providence and goodness that he won't let us ultimately fall. He brings us back. He, he restores us. He, he renews us. And then verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. So now, it's not just that he holds me by my hand, but, but he teaches me his truth. And that's this aspect of going to the sanctuary when I understood their end. When I, when I heard the word of God, it ministered to me. It refreshes me. 
You know, I, I'm glad you're, you're here tonight. I'm glad for your faithfulness. Glad you're here Sunday mornings and and I hope you feel refreshed from time to time. That you walk in with a certain attitude and you leave with another. And I'm not just pointing at you, I'm pointing to me too. Because the word, the word refreshes us. The uh, New Testament, Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And the sanctification there is like a scrub brush. The, the, the word of God. In the book of Ephesians, the word of God is referred to in the Greek as a laver. As a laver. L-A-V-E-R. It's the word that's used for the laver that was outside the tabernacle. And the priests, when they had offered their sacrifices, when they were all bloody and messy and so on, they walked over to the, to the laver and they would wash. And all of the, the filth and everything else would be taken away and they would be cleansed. Jesus says the word of God is what cleanses us. It, it removes all of this wrong thinking, all of this stuff that we get burdened with and, and you know all of the things that society tells us and the news tells us and the things that get us down. And we walk in and, and we hear the word of God and it's so different from what we hear all week long. And we begin to realize, you know, we don't have it so bad. In fact, we're a blessed people. And we can move in just a matter of moments from a, an attitude that says, woe me, to an attitude that says, oh Lord, you're so good to me, thank you. Thank you. B, the psalmist's end will be glorious. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. So then he just talks about this whole aspect of being welcomed into the presence of God. And of course, that's not true of the non-believer. So next, the renewed condition of the psalmist. A, the psalmist is not jealous for what the wicked has, but more desirous of having what he, the child of God has. Psalm 73, 25, whom have I heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. B, the psalmist, though not fat like those around him, has strength and endurance of a far different kind. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So now he's not looking at the physical strength of the non-believer, but he's looking at the spiritual strength. And he recognizes, he recognizes that he's not always going to be physically strong but yet God will be with him and God will help him through those times of weakness and those times of discouragement. The psalmist has a renewed view of the wicked's condition. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. They aren't going to be in glory. They're going to perish forever and ever. The psalmist has a renewed view of his own condition. 
But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. I may tell of all your works, but for me, it's good to be near to God. What a change. What a change of saying, I've cleansed my heart in vain. To now, it's good. It's good to be near you. The spiritual life is a pilgrimage. It has its ups and it has its downs. And a lot of it has to do just really with where our focus is, where our attention is, where our thoughts are. Let the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. We can look around us and we can be envious of vacations, of houses, of cars, of lifestyles, of bank accounts, of freedoms, of excesses. And then we can take a whole different look and see what the Word of God has to say and to come into his house and be refreshed, be renewed, to be strengthened and reminded that we are a blessed people, that what we know to be true, truly God is good to Israel, is really true. And it's true for you and it's true for me. That what we know to be true is experientially true. And we can be incredibly, incredibly grateful and thankful that we belong to him. And nothing that this world offers can compare to that. Much more desirous than gold. For gold can't keep you safe. Gold can't bring you into glory. Gold can't do for you what God does. He forgives your sins. He welcomes you into your, his presence. And you live with him forever and ever. We are a blessed people. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us. For there are times that we all struggle. There are times in which we grow weary. And we grow faint. But we thank you, O oh God, that you always hold our hand. And you keep us from ultimately falling. And I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come into the sanctuary, to come in, into your house, to come and hear the word of God, which is unique. For the psalmist talked about, when he thought about things, things by himself, he, he grew weary. As important as our devotions are, Oh, Lord, sometimes, sometimes, even our devotional life is weak and our minds wander and we find it difficult to concentrate. And perhaps we even grow weary and tired and indifferent 
to your word. So we thank you that there are places we can come and hear your word anew and afresh and you speak to us and you help us and you encourage us and you refresh us and you remind us once again of how different the end is for the righteous and the unrighteous. Lord, may eternity, may being in your presence be a reality that helps us day by day. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.